Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. I'm Dan Dietrich, and that's Doug Padgett. Uh, I'm in Southwest Michigan, and Doug, you may be uh, interested to hear this uh, little note about the weather. Yesterday, it was like 65, and uh, we were out in the garden. We were in short sleeves, taking walks around the neighborhood. Uh, this morning, two inches of snow. <laughs> it's below freezing Perfect. and there's snow. Perfect. One, one day you're clearing the yard, the next day you're... Which, which is a Colorado thing, right? Like the people do that in Colorado all the time. They don't worry about it. It's like, hey, it was beautiful today. Snow, it's going to be yeah. beautiful. But not in Michigan. You know, it's, it's an emotionally triggering event. <laughs> I thought we were through this. Yeah. Here we are. Did you that way? Well, uh, well, West Michigan, where you are and what you're speaking of, is a place that we just were this weekend. Uh, always enjoy the good people of West Michigan. And boy, in the political world, they've had a lot going on, you folks. Uh, in big day yesterday in the in the primaries, I guess it's a big day. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm always curious about who chooses to vote in primaries when the when the decision has already been made. Either right. the is is running. Uh, or there's been enough delegates or the, the polling or whatever tells you someone's going to win. And yet some people still participate in the in the primary elections. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of friends ask me like, hey, should I? Because uh, it's an open primary. You can vote Republican or Democrat. And they're like, should I jump in the Republican side of things and vote for anybody but Trump just to mm-hmm. you know, make a statement that way? I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I, apparently, that was a lot. You know, Nikki Haley uh, picked up thirty some, nearly thirty percent, and a lot, some of the analysis is already saying that it was people who uh, would not otherwise be voting for the Republican candidate at the top of the ticket. So that's mm-hmm. that's that's a curious number. And then in uh, uh, on the Democrat side, we talked about this yesterday on the politics podcast. But there's this move uh, called "Listen to Michigan" or something like that. Uh, a, a push for Democrat voters to write in undecided on the Democrat side. And they were hoping to get 10,000 people to write in undecided as a statement telling mm-hmm. Joe Biden to do something about the Israel-Gaza situation. And uh, it turns out they got 40,000 people to uh, wow. write in undecided. So they blew past their their goal and... Uh, so I thought that was interesting too. Pretty strong showing uh, yeah. for that movement. Yeah, the uncommitted uh, statement it, for a lot of people is related to the policies of the administration as it relates to the Israel-Hamas conflict and, and violence that mm-hmm. Israel continuing to inflict on uh, the people in Gaza. Yeah, so that's where it's coming from. But I, I did hear that in 2012, is that right? You're right when Obama was running for re-election. There was thirteen percent of uncommitted voters right. in the primary. <laughs> so there's usually a fair amount, but this was yeah. up to thirty percent or something like that. It's a pretty significant uptick. Yep. Yeah. It's a it's a thing that people do with with primaries is they make make other other decisions and make other statements. Um, and and we're, we're trying to impact people's uh, thoughts about all this too, wanting them to take in other other ideas than just their typical identity. Um, because frankly, for, for anyone, and and maybe some people don't like this idea that we would suggest that every individual voting should have a sense of autonomy 
an agency between any other commitments they have, whether that's they're part of a religious community or they're part of a, of a union or uh, they've, they're a member of a, of a political party, that when it comes to vote, you should take that seriously as a person who's going to say, this is how I choose to use my vote in this moment, right? And not feel like somehow your voting is, uh, should be taken by gra- taken for granted by you or by anybody else of how you're going to vote. That, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of paying attention is a really good thing. And for some people, they've, they've switched their political, um, uh, allegiances and their political desires. So they used to vote for one party or would switch around and now they're more committed to voting only one direction or the other way. Some people have been much more, um, you know, hey, I was real loosey-goosey and now I'm locked in or I was really locked in. I'm real loosey-goosey. So you know, a lot of that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're part of a film there uh, that was that was shown in, in West Michigan and is still showing in West Michigan. So if you're watching this now and you're in, in West Michigan, head on over to the AMC in Holland and you can pick up uh, your own showing of God and Country, a film that is produced by Rob Reiner and has a bunch of uh, people from our world of Vote Common Good in it and other people that we um, are in the same work uh, along with who uh, are interviewed in this movie. And it's a documentary style film about the threat of Christian nationalism in the United States. And it's based on a book by someone named Catherine Stewart, a part of the Vote Common Good life and community. And we'll be doing an event with Catherine out in um, Santa Barbara, California on March 7th. Uh, but this film that was made and was released uh, two weeks ago, uh, is getting a, a lot of attention from people who care about this sort of thing. So on uh, Saturday, we hosted a showing, well, we attended a showing of the film at the AMC Theater and then hosted Talkback after it with, um, after the first show with Kristen Dumay and then after the second show with Nick Brock. Um, and, and the we, it was Dan and I, Dan running uh, what you're going to be the beneficiaries of running the the audio and video uh, of our conversation with Kristen and me in conversation with Kristen. So uh, it was, um, I, I've never been in a film like this before. So that was new for me as an experience. Um, and then I've never led a talk back inside of a theater. Uh, I've been part of one because back in two, I'd forgotten all about this in 2006 when the Da Vinci code came out. <laughs> oh man. I yeah, remember were- that whole thing. I think it was 2006. I think that's right. Maybe, maybe four or five, 2004 or five, but I think it was 2006. I had written a book called Body Prayer and I was in Germany doing a thing with a bunch of church leaders there. And that film came out and they're like, Hey, this American author is in town talking about the Da Vinci code and, um, we should have a conversation with them. And it was all about, uh, George Bush politics. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, so sitting in a theater after the, after the, the, I had to watch the film and then sat in the theater up on a, on a panel at that case. And I'd totally forgotten about that whole experience. Uh, I think it was in Dresden or something, even where this thing happened. Oh, wow. uh, I can't quite remember. Um, but that was, that was trippy. Uh, but Kristen and I, uh, chatted about the film, how it came about, our own experience with it, what we think of it, uh, took some audience questions and we're going to bring that live to you. Yeah. Uh, now. I mean, and hopefully, live right now. <laughs> hopefully, you'll go see the film. You don't need to have seen the film to enjoy this conversation. I don't think it touches on a lot of things um, that have just been in the news, you know. So you'll be a, you'll be a beneficiary whether you've seen the film or not. 
And if you're thinking, hey, it's not showing anywhere near me, if you go on the Vote Common Good website, you can find where, where it's showing. It's showing all over the country, but in like 100 theaters, not like in mm-hmm. 500 theaters or 700 theaters. So a smaller theatrical release. And then it will be on streaming services, I have heard, as soon as the end of March. So in the next four or five weeks, you should be able to um, start seeing something about this film called God and Country uh, and have a chance to uh, to watch it. Um, I I mentioned this yesterday, but uh, some people that I know who um, are Trump supporters attended the film, friends of mine, um, and at the, they, they don't really keep up on the politics side of this stuff quite as much. They didn't know the term Christian nationalism. They were, they were unfamiliar with that term. And, and one of the people after this thing was done said, um, yeah, I think, I, I think, you know, so and so and I who were together at this, I, th- I think we lean more nationalist. I think we're more like that. <laughs> so they were, they, they got the language they needed to explain the positions that they hold. I bring that up simply to say, apparently the film, uh, depicts both sides well enough that reasonable people could say, I see myself on that side. Uh, yeah, I don't hope- think it's making caricatures of, of either side. And so you can, you can watch it and say like, well, no, yeah, that's an accurate representation of what I believe. I don't know why anyone would. I just, <laughs> it was stunning to me. Yeah. Uh, but again, uh, this is what makes uh, part of one of the features that makes the world wonderful is yeah. that people are in ways that are inexplicable sometimes. And sometimes we can find great joy in it. And other times it's just a conundrum. And sometimes it can feel really dangerous. Yeah. Um, there's a political outcome to some of this that can have real impact that we know uh, impacts people's lives. And mm-hmm. for those of us, common good is served by people like Donald Trump and those who support Christian nationalism not being in elected office. We're, we want to use this film for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And if people, people, I don't know, see it otherwise. Uh, that's how it is. So, so Kristen is a major voice in this world. If you're unfamiliar with her, she is... Uh, very, um, uh, she, she's in a lot of spaces. She speaks a lot on these issues. She wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne that a lot of people are uh, excited about. And it, it describes the move to, ma- uh, to masculinity and Christianity and to hypermasculinity and how there's this whole movement that wants their Jesus to be a little more John Wayne-like, and that explains the title. But then she really goes through and articulates a lot of the things that have happened inside of Christianity in the last 35 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. And Dan, I don't know if you remember, but just before uh, before Jesus and John Wayne was, well, maybe this is even before you were in the Vote Common Good universe. One of the events that we held in Holland, Michigan, so it could have been in 2018 or it may have been in 2020. We've been there so many times that I, I can't quite remember. Um, we had a little after party over uh, for, over someone's house yeah. right near the where we, where we did this thing, and, and Kristen was there and, and, and had a book. preview copy of her book. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing it. Okay. okay, so so this was twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and and she was there, and I remember you know meeting her and someone saying, "Hey, this is Kristen. She's a professor at the Cal- Calvin College here, and uh, she has a book coming out. People are really going to love it." And I mean, I believe that, like I believe everybody as somebody who's written a lot of books, you really do believe that your book is going to, people are going to love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> read it. Most of the time though, people don't really get excited about any books that are published. There's more books that are published that people are not excited about in the pub, in the population than are. Or a it handful of people get excited in a small niche world. 
But totally. Yeah. Yes. And I thought, well, maybe a book about Christian nationalism or about male masculinity and the effects of Christian nationalism. Yeah, maybe some people are going to be excited about that. Ended up being an exceptionally well-received book, mm-hmm. well-deserved. And, and Kristen has since then become someone who's really in demand and doing great, great work. And so she's been a, a good friend for uh, our work and a good friend of many of us. And uh, so glad to be in this in this conversation with her. And um, so that's that. So we're yeah. sitting on stools with a big white uh, theater screen behind us. <laughs> and... Uh, and here, and here, here we go. And we'll, aggressive we'll, cleaning yeah, we'll lights. Movie theaters are not designed for anything other than sitting in the dark and watching a movie or having lots of lights on so you can see all the popcorn and clean it up after. So, um, Hey, great point. These are theaters. These are spaces designed to watch recordings, not to make recordings. <laughs> yeah. It's a little life lesson, right? In the, yeah. in Recording, viewing uh, infrastructure, some places are made for making them, uh, and some are made for watching those yep. uh, things that are made. And this was clearly, yes, uh, if we couldn't look any more pale and uh, sort of, <laughs> sort of re- real life-like, I guess, instead of the flattering cameras and camera angles. But uh, nonetheless, might be a really good one. So, so here it is, a conversation that we had uh, just the other night. There you go. This is Dan Dietrich from Vote Common Good. Also lives here in West Michigan. Uh, I live in Minneapolis. Um, and you might know Nick Brock from uh, Vote Common Good West Michigan back there. So well, the three of us are super glad to be here and always glad to be uh, with Kristen. So Kristen, thank you for being part of this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you all for coming. This is, it's, it's really great to, uh, to have you all here and to be with people who, who care about this. And I know that so many of you are doing really good work in your spaces. Well, uh, this is the third time I've seen the film. Uh, Kristen, you've seen it. Five times. Five times. (laughs) Uh, do you think you're up for an Academy Award for best spoken head in a documentary film? Yeah. Yeah. It would be great. Uh, did you ever think, Kristen, when you were doing the work you do, uh, that you'd end up in a movie theater up on a screen uh, talking about Christian no. nationalism? Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, furthest, furthest thing from my mind. And frankly, I much prefer to be in a room by myself with archival materials working on a computer screen. <laughs> that, that's my comfort zone. And yet here we are. Yeah. How, how, okay. So let's talk a little bit about how we ended up in this film and what's happening with it. Is, is that good? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you first heard about or got invited to be part of this okay. film? I'll go first, then you can answer too. Uh, so I was actually contacted very early on by Catherine Stewart. This is an adaptation of her book, The Power Worshippers. Anybody here have read that book? Oh, good, good, good. Two or three. All of you should read that book. It's so, so good. So Catherine and I go back several years. She actually uh, was one of my endorsers for Jesus and John Wayne. And her book, The Power Worshippers, really tracks the kind of behind-the-scenes scaffolding of the religious right, the funding, the networks, the organizations, 
Uh, and it's just meticulously researched. She's an investigative reporter. So I knew her from that, and that's why I reached out to her. She immediately um, read G- the manuscript for Jesus and John Wayne, endorsed it, and we've been good friends ever since. So she actually approached me very early on. Uh, first, I knew about this project before it even got picked up, and then she came back to me and asked if I'd be in it, and I said, absolutely. And then when I was actually giving the interview, and I just told you this uh, before we came in here, I was actually a little taken aback because I thought I was going to be uh, asked primarily uh, in my role as, as historian about the kinds of networking and scaffolding that her book had been about. And then they asked me about my personal faith. <laughs> And about growing up Christian. And I I actually like paused the interview and said, what are you doing and what is this? (laughs) Because that's not what I had actually thought I had signed up for. And then they explained and and in, in a way that I agreed with that what's really important when we talk about the threat of Christian nationalism, which is hard enough to do as it is, uh, that we make clear this is not against Christianity. And that Christians can be against Christian nationalism. And in fact, many of those of us who are speaking out against Christian nationalism and the dangers are ourselves devout Christians. I I agreed with that. And even though that was very much outside of my comfort zone, I, um, I agreed to participate in that respect. And so you can see I'm doing both in this film, and that's the case for a few of us. So that's my origin story. How about yours? Yeah. Mine goes back uh, equally far back. Um, All those names that you see up on a screen, which normally when I'm watching a film, I don't pay any attention to the names up there. But it's a good reminder that these things are created by people doing things. Individual people making choices and doing something. One of the names that you'd see up there is someone named Steve Oaken. Now, it just came up as producer Steve Oaken. Well, Steve is someone who was involved with our organization, Vote Common Good, and told me about Catherine's book, first of all, and said, I don't know if you've read this, but this is super helpful and super important. This is well before January 6, 2021. This is back in 2019, uh, early 2020, where we started talking about the influence of Christian nationalism on our society. And Steve then said, I think this needs to be made into a film and I want to acquire the rights to it. So started working on that. So years ago, started working on these, uh, on taking this book and making it available to people. Because not everybody wants to read an entire book about a topic like this, right? It's hard enough to get people to come for an hour and a half long film on a topic like this. But these are decisions being made. Catherine working for years, Catherine Stewart working for years to help understand what's going on in the religious right and how it's funded and what its structures are. Kristen Dumay working so hard to help articulate the kind of Christianity that some of us have experienced. Steve Oaken wanting to make a film. Rob Reiner saying we want to join in on that film. Uh, Many of you involved in the work you're doing. It's individual choices that people are going to make that's going to make a determination about what exists in the future. The future doesn't exist short of the decisions we make to make it. So if you felt like at the end of this film, boy, it didn't tell us what to do. I don't know, did anybody have that feeling? Did that, okay. Yeah, did you, have you heard that where people's critique yes. is like, well, I didn't really get an explanation of what Christian nationalism is and I don't know what to do. I mean, I've heard a lot of critiques, but yes, that's one of them. Yes. Oh, okay. I can't wait to hear, I can't wait to hear more. Uh, I, I have too. Um, 
Well, well look, there, there's a difference between problems and predicaments. Problems have solutions. Predicaments require multiple responses. Our dishwasher broke last week. We had to go get a new one. I took it out, had to change the piping in there. The valve broke. I went to Home Depot last night at 8 o'clock and said, this is broken. And they said, buy this and put it in there. That's a problem that has a solution. My wife and I deciding which dishwasher we're going to install, that's a predicament. That involves different people with very complicated sets of expectations. Christian nationalism is not a simple problem with a single solution. It's a predicament that has faced this country from its founding and before, and it's going to continue. And it's going to take multiple responses from all of us in all of our conditions in the side of all of our relationships. And that's what I hope this film does for you. Um, now, I, frankly, I'm shocked that we're sitting in a movie theater watching it. Uh, it's great. Um, but it's not everything. This isn't the beginning and end of it. Do you want to talk about any critiques or anything that you've heard or, or your own thoughts about the film and what you wish it had or didn't have or any? Yeah, um, I mean, there are uh, critiques coming from all sides, right? Uh, I mean, when the earliest, with when the trailer released, it was, how dare you Christians team up with a secular atheist, uh, and then worse things were said, a person like Rob Reiner, and um, to attack Christians, to persecute Christians, even right, and, and to me that that um, was a kind of a, a bit of a non-issue because in, in my line of work, I, I work with all kinds of people, and often I don't even know what their faith commitments are. We're working in common cause, um, but one critique, uh, well, I guess there are, there are so many. Um, that that could be raised. One was, you know, that that you don't delineate clearly enough between what is Christian and what is Christian nationalist, which is kind of wild because on the other hand, a critique is you're whitewashing Christianity here by trying to salvage and distinguish Christianity from Christian nationalism. So you can see the critiques are coming from left and right, which doesn't necessarily mean you got it just right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it just means that there is no way to address an issue like this and please everyone. It is just impossible to do that. And in fact, many of the people that were really, really critical of us teaming up with Rob Reiner were those who had never uttered a word about Rob Reiner before in their lives, but really don't like what we're doing, right? So I feel like, you know, rather than us being tarnished by Reiner, it's almost the reverse that was going on there. Um, one question that I'll pose to you, which was a critique that came out in the pages of Christianity Today, I think last week or so, was that this film may have some merits, but it's preaching to the choir. It's not going to convert any diehard MAGA folks. And um, so I'll, I'll toss that one to you and, and see what you think. And, and maybe you can reflect on who you think the audience is or the intended audiences are for this film. I know that the producers uh, want the film to be accessible to people who are unnerved and uncomfortable by Christian nationalism and still see themselves rooted inside of their Christian faith. That was very important to them. I don't think the filmmakers 
see their job as trying to take hardcore MAGA supporters or hardcore Christian nationalists and to convert them by them watching a single film. I don't think that's their point. I don't think that should be the point of any film. Our organization, Vote Common Good, we work with people who have a blended identity of being Christian with being Republican, and they're uncomfortable with that blended identity. And they want there to be two different identities, or at least they want to feel the freedom to choose. And they may not want to stay Republican any longer, but they do want to stay Christian. But that's not the same thing as convincing someone that they should separate their identities. I've, I've spent my adult life as an evangelical and as someone who's also sort of evangelistic about things, like not only about religion, I, but I just like convincing people of stuff I like. So I don't know, we can talk about stuff and I would just start talking about things I like. Uh, in fact, hang around afterward. We'll just come up with some topics and we'll talk about stuff we like and try to help each other figure it out. But that doesn't mean I try to get people to do things they don't want to do. I don't think these filmmakers or Vote Common Good or the author of Jesus and John Wayne, if you're not familiar with the book Jesus and John Wayne, I would be shocked if you're in this theater. Uh, but that, that book is not trying to convince people to change their minds. It's trying to help people whose minds are changing to continue on that path. There are people who don't know this stuff. They're watching it, and they're like, I had no idea. That's really different than trying to convince someone. So if you've already thought to yourself, I wonder how I could get my brother-in-law. I wonder how I could get my sister-in-law. I wonder how I could get my aunt to see this film. Was anyone thinking things like that as you're sitting here? Yeah. Like, people have asked me, like, what can we do to get more people to come? I'm like, I've been an evangelical preacher my whole adult life. Trying to get people to do things they don't want to do, that doesn't work. Getting people to do things they do want to do, that barely works. So we have to measure ourselves a bit in how we think it all works, what we think is going on. I'll just say, as a church leader, preaching to the choir really helps the choir. The choir in this country has been quiet for too long. And I think a little preaching to the choir is not a bad idea. See, I'm preaching to the choir. See how easy that is? That's how it works. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, I just think, look, we, a little bit of encouragement for all of us that stay quiet too long. So if, if I could give anybody any encouragement is just say something more than you were saying yesterday, tomorrow. Don't have to do it today, but do it tomorrow. Just say a little more. Because we don't have, look, the problem in America is not going to be solved by telling people to be quiet. The future of America will be changed when we all start saying more. And there's a lot of us who go through our lives and a lot of church leaders who go through their ministries in times of crisis with their Zoom audio on perpetual mute. And somebody's having to say, we can't hear you. I think you're on mute. I just think we need to take off our mute on a whole lot of things and start saying more things. And if this film helps people do that, Kristen, I think it's a good idea. So I've got all kinds of thoughts. Can't stand the poster, personally. WWJD with a question. What would Jesus do? Why is that the, f the poster of this thing? 
totally don't get it. But, you know, what do I know about all this? So I've got all kinds of thoughts about stuff that's in the film and could have been in the film and other people that should have been in the film. But overall, if it helps people say a little more, I feel like that's a good thing. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because my publicist, when Jesus and John Wayne was coming out, actually came up with some promo material with the WWJD on it. And I was like, oh, no, no, don't. <laughs> let's, let's not go that direction. But so it was funny to see that then on the film. Um, you know, one other um, thing that I think is worth mentioning with respect to uh, this portrayal is, uh, you, you know, you've got a lot of different strands here. You, you had the, the charismatic revival, right, the prophecy stuff, and that was really heavy in the January 6th uh, section. You had Tony Perkins, which is a little bit more in the mainstream religious right, and you have um, uh, all sorts of figures. I think we had um, Jerry Falwell Sr., Jerry Falwell Jr., a lot of these. Uh, we're looking at a really broad spectrum of evangelicals. And, and we also had the comment, it's not just evangelicals, it's mainliners, it's, right, it, it's, it's, it's a diverse group. That is really hard to convey in a, a film. It's really hard to convey. I mean, I have an hour-long lecture that I give that just scratches the surface on the conversation around Christian nationalism, the survey data, who we're talking about, what it actually looks like, and, and you don't have to put it to pictures and music and things like that, right, which is a, a film is a, a whole different genre. Um, but what I would say, so some people are suggest, or, 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 you know, suggesting that, oh, you can't just look at the, you know, Lance Wall now and, and, and then tar the 81% with being new apostolic Reformation, which is true, but here's the thing. We've got some of the real movement leaders represented here who then end up having an enormous impact through mobilization, and we had some clues there, and that's the stuff that was really coming from, from Stewart's book on how they are tracking voters, how they are working through churches, through pastors, through networks. And so what we have is a large swath of this 81%, if you will, who may be well-intentioned, may have no goal of doing away with our democracy, who are still complicit in this broader movement that is being led by some pretty fringe, pretty extremist figures like those in the New Apostolic Reformation, right? So that's kind of what we're looking at. So how do you describe and define that movement, which is why it's so key for Christians wherever they find themselves uh, along that spectrum to speak out and to say, yes, this, but absolutely no, this. Because right now, it's, it's really a tactic on the part of Christian nationalists to suggest that anybody who is pushing back against Christian nationalism is pushing back against Christianity and is smearing all Christians. And when those of us who are Christians say, no, wait a minute, okay, first of all, fair warning, you may get attacked for doing it, but the more of us who are doing that, the more credibility we have. And, I mean, bonus, it's actually true. Right, it is actually true. So we can be saying these things, and it is an accurate reflection. Um, in the circles I move, and, and across the country, the people who are most ardently speaking out against Christian nationalism right now are devout Christians. We're going to get to some questions from you all in a moment. Um, when our organization started, Vocom Good started in 2018, we, there was a New York Times article about the idea that evangelical 
pastor like myself and some other people from the evangelical world wanted to reach out to the kinds of voters who no longer could find themselves in the Republican Party, right? So, and the way a, a story like that's going to go, they're going to talk to somebody uh, on the other side. So there was an interview with Ralph Reed, who some of you might know already, but was in the film, the guy who was talking about reaching out to the voters in all the places, having all the data points. And he said something that was very true. He said, you know, every few election cycles, some upstart of religious voter outreach comes around, people that want to do the others. He said, but I'm not at all concerned because there's no way they can match 40 years of organizing and the hundreds of millions of dollars that we have in place. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. That's right. We can't match 40 years. We're 40 years behind. And he was going back to Jimmy Carter when there was a Democratic president who was an evangelical from Georgia, right, saying we've shifted the, the, the playing field since then in 40 years. So, yeah, we can't do that. But also, it takes a lot of money to maintain a 40-year network that works against people's sensibilities, the amount of money that it takes and structure and power and threat that it takes to keep pastors and seminaries and Christian colleges and publishers in line is really expensive. That big balloon costs a lot to keep inflated. A pin is really cheap compared to the price of that balloon. The right investments in the right places can perform something we like to joke as acupunctural intervention. A small insert can make a really big difference in the nervous system. So there's a certain amount of impact that you can have. And I would encourage you not to become diarist about it. It is true that the structure of Christianity in America tends to lean this direction. And look, it's across the mainline traditions. It's in Catholicism. It's certainly in evangelicalism. Talking 50% or more of people that are into this kind of stuff, either aggressively or sort of passively. So there's a lot going on. But difference and intervention doesn't have to cost as much, but it does cost something. If, If you ask, Kristen Dumay, how she spends her time. It's talking, I mean, can I over talk for you? It's talking to reporters. It's travel. It's doing everything other than what she wants to be doing. The personal cost, both in time, energy, and finance that it takes to do what you do is a lot. Organizations like ours, organizations that many of you are a part of, they really do need your support and help. So any part you can play in that is going to be putting together the kind of response that can take place. So I would encourage all of you to find those groups, find those organizations. I don't know, send coffee things or money or I don't know, something nice. Okay, something nice, buy some book, do whatever, but find a way to be engaged because there's a structure going on that needs to be responded to, not in kind, that's not the way it's going to happen. That's just not, that's not how this is going to work. But there's alternative responses to this thing that exists. So there are ways for all of us to be engaged and involved in this. And we hope you take this talk back and this film and all the other stuff that comes out as an invitation for you to be uh, participating in all this.
Ready for some questions? Absolutely. All right. We're just going to let you shout them out. And then we are recording this talk back and we're going to make it available on a live stream. If you have other people you think want to watch it or want to watch it again later, uh, which would be weird. But anyway. Uh, so the question is, if I'm going to do more work on uh, connections between Christian nationalism and, and uh, German history or um, the Third Reich. And uh, I, uh, I don't know, if you, you saw that little pause there. It was about 10 times as long when I was deciding, am I going to go there in this interview? Because I know how this works. Uh, you know, first of all, you sign away all of your rights before you say your first word. Uh, when you give these interviews. So they can use them however they want forever. And you have no no say. So um, it's it's hard to bring up that subject anyway and then in that context. So I, I hesitated a very long time. Um, but as I actually just wrote a piece on my Substack last week where I addressed that and, and where I, I include something I had written a couple of years ago on connections and how this came about. And in fact, the very first piece that I published on what would become Jesus and John Wayne, which was time to Trump's inauguration, uh, it, 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 went viral. And uh, within a couple days, I got a, a letter from a scholar of Nazi propaganda who said, do you realize that all the things you're quoting from these evangelical books are exactly like what the German Christian movement was saying in the 1930s? And I responded to him, yes, I know. Right, that was my field. I'm fully aware. I, I don't think I can say it. So I've been tracking this for a long time. I'm... Um, I'm not planning on writing at this point, writing specifically on that, simply because I have not been um, active in that field for 20 years, and a lot happens, and so I, I'm really um, uh, deferring to actual specialists, although, you know, I do have, I have some background, but um, I may end up writing, I'm finishing up another book right now, and then um, that one's due a week before the election in November, so prayers appreciated for that, and then um, what happens next is kind of an open question um, in a lot of ways, and depending on the response, the results of the election will probably shape what direction I go, and there's a possibility that I may return to that at some point. Other questions? Um, Bert, we, we really appreciate what folks like you are doing. You are stepping out um, in the cause of trying to preserve Christianity and, and democracy. I think the problem is we only know a handful of you who do it. <laughs> and watching the film, we see dozens and dozens of well-funded people on the other yes. side. Um, we happen to get Doug's uh, vote common good email frequently, but I would love to get access to more people who are out there that we can support. You, you had said support people, we'd like to know more of who they are. Yeah, so one place to go, and I'm not sure if it's set up yet, but it soon will be, is there's an organization called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And I was just uh, talking with their director a couple of weeks ago saying, hey, look, I'm speaking all over the country right now, and audiences who come are ready to do something. And it is a huge waste that I can't direct them 
to to the, the, the places where they can actually go do something. And she said, we're on it. And so they're going to be coming out with a website that will connect people to organizations in your local community. And that's really helpful. So um, keep an eye out for that. I do have a newsletter on Substack that you can sign up for free. And I'm essentially dedicating it for the next several months to exactly kind of this cause. I'm highlighting works of scholarship, new books that are coming out and older books that are now very relevant, including some on 20th century European history. And uh, I'm going to be sharing opportunities to participate in things, to contribute to things for between now and the election. And then we'll see what happens after that. So um, that's one kind of clearinghouse where I'm going to try to bring um, um, bring different resources and make them available. But that Christians Against Christian Nationalism website, it, when it's up and running, will be a really good space. And I will be promoting that as soon as it is up and running in, in my Substack as well. Some of the other groups that you may have seen in, in this, uh, in the film, Jamar Tisby is someone that you should follow and he keep up on the work. He has a great newsletter on Substack. Excellent. And, and his work, as Kristen mentioned, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, which comes out from the uh, American Baptists, uh, are behind that, behind that effort. They're looking for funding and for your support, and they hold events in different places. Faithful America is another one that has a series of uh, communications that go out and organizing. In fact, we, we travel the country. We have a big bus that says, Faith, Hope, and Love, Supporting Democracy for All, Resisting Insurrections, and Confronting Christian Nationalism. So if you ever want to come with us and have a little fun in the country, it's great. We drove down to Eagle Pass to be around the truckers. We're going to be in California on March 7th with Kristen Stewart running events on faith and democracy, rolling up on Franklin Graham and uh, the border tour that they're doing, providing this, this counter-messaging on the road. And Faithful America is a big part of that work. We're doing that work, uh, that work with them. So they're, they're another one of the groups you want, might want to see. And Red Letter Christians, you saw Shane Claiborne in there at the end. That's another group that's, that's involved in this. Now the problem is we can name them all, to your point, right? We can name them all. So... New things need to exist. And every one of those groups was started because someone or some small group of people said, I think we should do something about it. We have a predicament and we should respond to it. You might be someone who wants to respond to it and create something. And the, the thing we need to do is to invoke creator culture around these issues and have you create more things. Um, the, the, the future was, is created, the, our current experience is created by, you know, people's past and the future is going to be created by people's choices. So I'd encourage you to consider that as well. Uh, even the small upstart things that feel like they don't have much potential can really turn into something. I look around this audience and many people have the same color hair as I. Um, I I know you work on college campuses. Can you speak to the, the spirit there and where college students are? Because... Yeah, that's a really good question. So where are college students, the younger generation, where are they at in this? Now, in terms of commitment to Christian nationalism or so on, right, the, the statistics are encouraging. There's much less commitment among younger generations um, to uh, kind of par a partisan version of Christianity generally. Um, but in terms of activism, I will say um, not a whole lot there. 
And it's, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm in my 40s and I feel like I'm too old for this. And uh, in, in previous social movements, it's, it's the college age that are really out there and even younger who are out there in the streets who are really pressing ahead. And it's not that there are none, but it really does seem to be 40, 50, 60 year olds who are, are um, most alert to this. And I've, I've thought about that some and I thought, you know, part of what we have here is um, college students, they're young. They, when you think about their kind of adult lives, very short, I mean, you're talking about in the, we're, we're chatting that um, pro-life um, woman up there who's like, I've been working five years for this, right? right? That's like her, her like lifetime since she was in, in middle school probably, right? You know, so that's her adult life. Um, all they've known is Trump. Like, this is their normal. And uh, that's really concerning. And for those of us who are a little older, whoa, what happened, right? This is not normal. And then for those of us with a historical perspective in particular, this is not only not normal, this is dangerous. All sorts of red flags if you know 20th century history, right? So there's this, uh, it's, it's a weird disconnect for for, uh, for me as a historian, when I look at kind of previous social movements and social justice movements, that it's not the 18, 19, 20 year olds who are out front. Um, we need more of them. We absolutely need more of them. We need them to feel empowered. There's a lot of apathy. Um, and there's just a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons here, I think. Um, uh, th there's not the, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks on social media and not really the habits anymore of coming together and making something happen just across the board and then in terms of politics as well. So if, if there are any ways to mobilize young folks, that would be absolutely critical. Really, everybody needs to be mobilized. Another challenge that we're up against is in 2016, there was a lot more energy up front of, you know, we had the shock value, what's happening, we can do something. 2016 is a long time ago. And uh, there's not that energy anymore or there's not that um, false optimism that we can go out and march, women's march and march for immigrant rights and so on and we're going to take care of this, right? We haven't taken care of it yet. So we, we have to not give up. And this is also where a historical perspective can come in handy because a lot of movements for social change, especially for social justice, take a very long time. And uh, one thing that we can absolutely learn from the civil rights movement, the long civil rights movement, is persistence. Persistence, resilience, and not giving up. And we just have to be um, gritty and um, stick with it and keep pushing through however long it takes. Because what we do now and what we do in advance of 2024 election, if it's successful, is going to be a whole lot easier than what we're going to have to do on the other side of that election if uh, we no longer have a functioning democracy. It's going to be so much harder. That's why I'm pushing myself to exhaustion right now, because it's just going to be so much more um, perilous, to be honest, um, if, if we don't succeed. The, the truth of it is that in the Christian nationalism topic with college students, the energy is on the right. One of the groups that you saw up there was called Turning Point USA. Charlie Kirk is someone that was on there a number of times. 
Turning Point USA is directed specifically to college students and is recruiting thousands of college students with significant amount of energy and significant amount of organization behind it. I don't think it's a wise thing to believe that demographics are our destiny. And there's sometimes inside political spaces or future of America civic spaces that just say demographics are going to solve this. I was born in 1966, but if people believe that the youth movement of 1968 was going to solve America's problems, we shouldn't believe that demographics are the solution to this. So the choices that we make are going to be the solutions to this. That list you saw, it came by quickly. I've seen the film three times, so it's a little easy. I'm going to see it a fourth time at 7.30, by the way, if anyone wants to stick around. Yet another showing if you want a double dose of this uh, with a uh, talk back uh, following that one as well. Um, but what, the second highest list on that organization on that group was Hillsdale College. Now, I know that Hillsdale College is pushing to a lot of adults and a lot of adult education, but a lot of money and Turning Point USA. So... Uh, and a lot of us, you know, tend to think that these things are just going to solve themselves and we just need to sort of run the clock out until demographics catch up. That's just not how it works in, uh, in culture and society and shift. So uh, I'm not sure what the future looks like because I'll tell you, in 2016, I would have said to you, Christian nationalism exists, but it's nothing to fear. But in early 2020, I thought, a COVID virus, how bad could that be, right? So a lot of us can really underestimate things that have been around for a while and think that, they're, that they don't have a deadly potential to them. So there's real choices that have to be made. Uh, time for one or two more, I guess. Yeah. Question, do you feel safe in your work? You want to take it first, Doug? I, I, uh, I do, and I say this partly uh, with a wink. The most dangerous part of our work is driving around the country, truly. The roads are really dangerous. So, um, But yes, there, there is inherent risk in this. And there's inherent risk about being public. People can show up at your house. They can target you. They can, they can do things. Um, so yeah, I do feel that it's, uh, it's not an undue level of risk. Um, I just saw the film the other night that's also playing here. Maybe you want to go next door, the Bob Marley film, uh, which I didn't know that Bob Marley was in a political crisis in Jamaica in the 70s and was, uh, had assassination attempts on his life, and that's what came, where his movie uh, music all came from. So I don't feel physical harm like that, risk, but I think about it every day. Like, is this actually dangerous, and how many people does it take? When we were in Eagle Pass, Texas last week, uh, I kept thinking about the person who um, drove down to El Paso, Texas five years ago and um, committed mass homicide in a Walmart. Um, so yeah, the, the, the risks are real, um, but it feels safe enough to keep, keep doing it. How, how do you feel? Yeah, um, I... I feel pretty safe. I do take some precautions um, from time to time. What I find is that when my words get picked up and put into online spaces, um, and a, a couple in particular, which I won't name because this will go out and I don't want to bring more, um, but it, it, it goes into then white nationalist spaces. And that's where some threats can come from. But all things considered, I get very few threats and um, very few. And I have friends 
in the broader pro-democracy movement who are on the ground in places like Idaho, Oregon, working against white nationalism in local communities. And they have very real threats all the time, all the time. Outside their door, um, you know, death threats, actionable. And so that um, puts my sense of um, unease in perspective. And I will also say that um, when um, Trump won the night of 2016, I, um, I took a book off my shelf and I put it on my, um, on my nightstand and I kept it there for a year and would read it regularly. And it's Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny. And if you haven't read that book, read it. Um, and I'll be writing more on that soon um, in, in my Substack in the next couple of months. But he, he has rules um, to, to fight tyranny and um, all, a, a number of them. But my favorite one was, um, is do not obey in advance. Do not obey in advance. Like it, it, as, um, as authoritarian rule is taking hold or there's a threat of it and, and things you know, are getting a little unnerving, um, the tendency of so many people is to go quiet. Right, because you're anticipating what might happen if you speak out, if you act out. And that is exactly the wrong thing to do. And I've always kept that in my mind when I feel like, oh, this could get me into trouble in my workplace, in, um, uh, out in the world. I'm like, could it really? Um, or am I gonna just be not doing what I need to do because I actually think that it's a very safe time right now in this country for all of us to do what we need to be doing. And if we don't do these things now, it will probably be less safe down the road. So let's use this time extremely well. And I'll also add, it's not as safe for everyone. We, we work with a lot of people in these spaces and organizations and many people because of their own social location do experience risk at a different level. And so all of us need to estimate that. And I do not underestimate what being a tall, white evangelical means in this space. It gives me more latitude. And that's not true for everyone. And so we, we all need to, you know, respond in the ways that make most sense for the situation we find ourselves in. Okay. You've all been here a long time. I mean, I'm impressed with your bladders, if nothing else. This, is, uh, this has been a long time you've all been sitting here. Um, you obviously know you can follow Kristen's work. If you don't know Vote Common Good, we'd welcome you to follow that. We have a bunch of curriculum on this, both small group curriculum on Christian nationalism, podcast, live. We do live training sessions. We travel the country doing those. Some of those are recorded. They're broken up in all kinds of segments. So there's a lot of material that we have, a lot of material that the other groups I mentioned already, Christians Against Christian Nationalism and and Red Letter Christians and others have material to help with this with this content if, if you really want to keep talking with other people about it. Um, so uh, I guess that's it, right? Anything else? Any last announcements from you? No, thank you again so much for coming. Thank you for your interest in this subject, for your um, commitment to further education and just blessings um, to you as you go back into your spaces. And um, I hope and pray that you can do good work there.